As you take your seat, turn with me to the book of Philemon. It's kind of weird not saying Colossians, but we did end our study of Colossians last week, and now we will be going into the next book, which is Philemon, and I think you will see here in just a moment, if you don't already know, why we chose to go into Philemon right after we got through with our study in Colossians. But I want to read to you the whole letter this morning. It's a short book of the Bible, uh, but as is often the case, you think that you're going to be able to present it all in one study, and then uh, the Lord shows you differently. So we're only going to be confining our study to verses one through seven this morning, but I do want to go ahead for context sake and read through the entire letter from Paul to Philemon. So if you found your way there. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. When the book of Colossians is studied, the book of Philemon usually follows on, and because they are connected in many ways, uh, being written about the same time and having names mentioned that are familiar to to both books, remember we closed out Colossians last week, we had a list of names there that we took some time with, one of those names for us was Onesimus, and when we got to that name, I told you, let's hold our place here, we're not really going to talk much about Onesimus, because we'll be exploring that more as we walk through the book of Philemon together. 
Uh, let me just take a moment, though, to try and summarize the introduction to this book so we can get right into it. And that's what I wanted to take some time with because it's very important that we understand the context, maybe the history in which this book was written. And so I think an introduction um, is necessary when we go into any book. And I'm not sure what book we're going to be going into when we leave the book of Philemon. Very well could be the book of First John, but we are still praying about that. We invite you also to pray with us. <clears throat> but there's no question really as to who the recipient of the letter is, right? I have it addressed to Philemon. Uh, the letter bears his name, but what we can gather about Philemon is that he was a prominent member of the church in Colossae. Uh, we see that also in Colossians 4.9. Uh, they were meeting in his house because there is a greeting there to the church in his house. And he was likely a man who had some wealth, may have had served in a leadership role in his church, but we are not told exactly if there was a leadership role that he possessed or if this, the church was meeting in his house. Uh, but because he had a bondservant, maybe he had multiple ones, so he was a prominent man, probably had quite a bit of wealth to his name. Uh, as to who wrote this letter to Philemon, I think it would be hard to argue that it was anyone but Paul, and that's not disputed among most biblical commentators. This letter would have also been written around AD 60 to 62, and that would have been placed around the same time that the book of Colossians was written. So it would have been written during Paul's time in imprisonment in Rome. Uh, it is believed that Philemon was saved under Paul's ministry probably during the time that he spent in Ephesus, which had occurred several years before the writing of this letter. And Philemon, we know, owned at least <clears throat> one slave, and that was this man named Onesimus, whose name means useful. And that was apparently a common name for slaves, so it wouldn't just be reserved for Onesimus being useful, but it would have been other masters naming their slaves the same name, so it was his slave-given name. We don't know if he had a birth name. Um, this is what we're told in Scripture his name was. Uh, Onesimus had run away from his master Philemon. He had like, likely taken some money there because Paul is talking about owing Philemon or maybe giving him some money on his behalf. So that's where we infer that he had probably left with some of Philemon's money. Uh, slaves of this time that left their masters would typically head for a city like Rome as it is even today, people try to get lost within a populated city. And if you go where there's more people, there's more ability to get lost within the crowd. So that was likely the reason that Onesimus, after he left Philemon, he went to Rome. But we also know that by God's design, Paul's encounter with Onesimus was not just happenstance. Onesimus was converted, likely converted, under Paul's ministry, and now he is a follower of Jesus Christ. And in the letter, we see that Onesimus was ministering to Paul and no doubt had considerable value to Paul himself. He was giving comfort to Paul. He was giving service to Paul. So it was in Paul's best interest to maybe keep Onesimus around, but Paul and Onesimus as well wanted to do the right thing. For one, Onesimus had violated Roman law by running away from his master Philemon uh, and even defrauded his master Philemon. That would have been a, a breaking of God's covenantal law. And so that, there was some guilt there and they wanted to do the right thing. Paul wanted reconciliation and it seems that so did Onesimus. Now that he was a believer in Jesus Christ, he wanted to follow 
what Christ would want for his life. Paul seems to be pretty confident with the writing of this letter that he can send Onesimus back and this would get him a loving welcome with Philemon. And I think that Paul must have trusted Philemon was a true believer. I think we can see that coming out of the letter and so was Onesimus. However, we see that Onesimus was not sent back alone. We know that going back to the end of the book of Colossians, Tychicus was the one that was to carry the letter to the church in Colossae, also probably the church, or the letter to the church in Ephesus, probably delivering the letter to Philemon as well. So Tychicus was sent out along with Onesimus, and Onesimus was not by himself in this journey headed back to his former master. And one of the reasons that this was likely the case is because there were what they call slave capturers back in Roman times that would have been like bounty hunters. They derived a profit from going out and finding runaway slaves, capturing them, and then returning them to their masters. Here Onesimus was going back voluntarily and probably for his protection and also security that he would send someone else with him and this was to be Tychicus. Now, just because this book takes up less than a page in most of our Bibles doesn't mean that we shouldn't assume it doesn't have much for us to learn there. It is just as valuable as the other books of the Bible. Otherwise, it would not have been included in the scriptures for us. So that's how we approach this book. There is value. There's something to be treasured here. And we're going to go deeper into it in order to learn what God has already prepared for us in this important letter. Uh, I don't know that we are going to find some of the deep and rich theological insights that we saw in the writing of the book of Colossians, the same things we also see in the book of Ephesians, but what we see more here is the importance of it because of its historical value and the depiction that it gives us of the church's relationship to the institution of slavery. So there's kind of a broad overarching theme that I find there. Uh, If we think about what slavery was in the Roman Empire, we have this image in our mind and we usually liken it back to our our own uh, instances of slavery having walked through that time and, and kind of been delivered out of that. But slavery in the Roman Empire was very widespread. And if you look at historical records, it indicates that the population was made up of about one third slaves. That's a significant portion of the human population of that time. Slaves could hold a number of positions. They weren't just slaves to be slaves, but often you would find slaves. They were doctors, uh, they were teachers, they were historians. They, they could be, hold all sorts of professions, but still fall under the category of slaves. And these gifts that they had or these professions that they were able to do were likely uh, taken advantage of by their masters and they did it as a service to the home where they were enslaved. Masters of slaves had rights over them and they could punish them. They could punish them very severely because if under Roman law, this slavery uh, was protected under the law and it also gave the masters the right to inflict punishment upon their slaves and it could be very serious and it could have been very serious for Onesimus. But around this time, around the writing of the New Testament, and now we see the gospel beginning to saturate the culture and the the social norms, masters were beginning to see the value of treating their slaves kindly as doing so they could get more work out of their slaves. The forceful hand was not working so well. Slaves would more or less rebel against that, still do the work, but feeling that oppression wouldn't do it as well as 
they would when they were treated fairly and favorably by their masters. They began to see this according to history and the writings there. Uh, Many times the slave-master relationship would become like family members and good friends. Some slaves even enjoyed favorable and profitable service under their masters and were even better off than free men of this time. Uh, many freemen had struggled in poverty. You know, it's not like our culture today where we all are free and we can hold various ranks in society. Uh, a freeman of that day didn't necessarily mean that they were very prosperous or that they could earn a, a really good living. In fact, many of them were living in more poverty than a slave would. So a slave in a home might have been treated uh, more fairly and even had more provisions uh, to their name. But not seeming to attack it directly, uh, Christianity is what began to undermine the evils of slavery by, of course, changing the hearts of both the slaves and the master and going into the root cause of where all of this stemmed from so we don't see it launching immediately to de- uh, attack the, the woes of slavery but going to the heart of man and changing the heart of man and out of this began to uh, bear this fruit in freeing the idea of slavery. We see multiple times where the scripture calls for kind and fair treatment of bond servants or slaves. In Colossians 4.1, if you just want to turn back there, we see some instruction that says, Masters, Treat your bondservants, also translated as slaves, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul is directing us to think about who your real master is. And even if you're a master of a slave at this particular time, when you have that understanding of Christ's authority over you, it gives you a better understanding of of your relationship with others and how you are to treat them. And Paul is saying, masters, you're to treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. In Ephesians 6, 9, we see him writing something very similar there as well in regards to this master-slave relationship. It says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him that God sees it all the same. He doesn't take into account you know, where you stand socially. If you've got more money than this guy and you own this guy, that, that gives you more rights into the kingdom than this guy, but no, the social standing is all equal in God's eye and that's what Paul is referring to there as he's uh, drawing out some of the, the points for the master-slave relationship. And we also see, of course, where salvation in Christ levels the social hierarchy. In Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are one in Christ Jesus. So I think with, uh, without being able to say that the Bible or scripture or Christianity attacks slavery directly, that we could go back and look at history and we could say that the Bible did away with slavery's abuses because of the things that Paul calls out here and we can see the changing of the condition of the human heart 
from one who is lost in sin to now being one who is free in Christ and free from the law of sin and death and now the change that is results from that saving relationship that is found in Christ Jesus. And if I were to find some theological theme for this letter, I would have to choose the word forgiveness, which is really a theme that's featured throughout the New Testament. And although we're not going to find the actual word of forgiveness mentioned in the text, you can definitely see it resonating throughout this letter. I think we'll see that today. So that will be kind of the theme that we're going to be focused on as we study this letter together. One of the things I think that all of us as Christians should know is that we do not look to social media or the current political climate that is swirling around us today to try and gauge your response to how others treat you. Uh, We live in a society today that promotes blame shifting and unforgiveness is the norm. And we observe more and more that those that seek revenge rather than forgiveness and reconciliation. So we don't look to it to tell us and to instruct us how we should treat others, but rather those of us who are children of God, we look to his scriptures to guide us and instruct us in how we relate and how we treat others. And the Bible is rich with stories of forgiveness and reconciliation, and the main one, of course, the story of our salvation. How the God-man, Jesus Christ, he came to live this perfect life, even having been tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. Having taken the sins of those who would believe in him to the cross and shedding his perfect blood for the forgiveness of our sins and having reconciled us to the righteous and holy God, securing our eternal redemption, that is the main story of forgiveness And if we haven't understood that story of forgiveness, then we're not going to understand the story of forgiveness that we can have for others and that Philemon can have for Onesimus. I can only imagine how this letter might have came to Philemon. Did he get eyes on Onesimus first, seeing Onesimus maybe walk in with Tychicus and saying, hey, I know that guy, that's my former slave, and what kind of things may have been going on in his heart as he observed that, but we're not told in scripture, all we can do is guess, and I'm not going to even, you know, try to speculate the emotional things that he was going through, or maybe the letter was handed to him before he even saw Onesimus, but we are not told that. Sometimes in our own personal studies, we can think about these things and wonder, um, I also wonder at Philemon's response or Philemon's response to the letter. You know, imagine seeing a personal letter from Paul that's intended only for you. And only Timothy and Titus in the scriptures um, have this privilege outside of a Philemon. So only those three have letters that bear their names written directly to them. I know most of us have likely had what we would call spiritual mentors in our lives that we look up to, and no doubt Paul was this, I think, for Philemon. But again, a lot of just speculation, you know, going on in my mind. We want to get back to the scriptures. So let me read again at least verses 1 through 7, because as I mentioned, this is where our study is going to be confined. So go through it again with me as I go back to verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, Typhilemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed among you or through you. 
So this letter doesn't begin like many of the other letters that Paul writes. In fact, I think most all of his letters except this one to Philemon will appeal to his apostleship. We see Paul going back and referencing that he is a true apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that in Colossians 1.1 where it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, brother. And he's starting this letter much differently with the phrase, a prisoner for Christ. That's how he begins this introduction to the letter and it shows that Paul is not going to use his apostle credentials here to appeal to Philemon, but rather he's going to use his own depiction, his his slavery unto Jesus Christ and that is the platform from which he is going to be speaking from as we go through this letter together. And one of the reasons is it's probably just not necessary to make it more personalized because it does have Philemon's name on it and it's addressed specifically to him that seems to be like a softer tone to it, not driving home doctrinal points in this letter particularly or making doctrinal corrections, but making his appeal from his own slavery. And it perhaps is because he's making the appeal for on behalf of one who really is a slave, and that is Onesimus. In 1 Corinthians seven twenty-two, Paul writes there, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. And Paul in going back to this platform of his being a prisoner to Christ Jesus himself is speaking to that bond-servant relationship that we have with our Lord. And there, from the outset of this letter, he's talking to Philemon, and Philemon should be able to see this as well, that yes, Paul, I understand, truly, I am this as well. I am a bond-servant to Christ, and all of us as Christians should understand that. we, We are all leveled in that sense, that we are bond-servants to Christ, having faith in him. We just kind of see there with Timothy as with Paul at the writing of this letter. Maybe Timothy was the one who was scribing the letter as Paul was telling it to him, even though we know part of the letter was at least written by Paul's own hand. He tells us that at the end of Philemon. Paul says that Timothy, that he is our brother, And I think that's a further indication that Philemon is considered a brother as well. When he says he's our brother, that means he's your brother too, Philemon. So we understand that Philemon was one who was a brother in Christ, not not someone that Paul is trying to convert in this letter, but is already converted. The name Apphia comes up, and it could be Philemon's wife. And then we have the name Archippus, and that could be his son, is what many commentators think, but it is not confirmed in Scripture. We can only guess at that. But they also hold a church within the home. Philemon's home is opened up to believers. They come in. They probably have studies of God's Word, teaching of God's Word, a a home fellowship. So this is... um, Something interesting to think about, again, this is not a congregation, I think, that you could get lost in. If somebody is having church in their home, there's probably not 500 to 1,000 people there coming on a regular basis. So Onesimus could not blend into the crowd there. He was able to do that in Rome as a slave, but there's something personal about the small gatherings that were were taking place during the New Testament. Most of these were home fellowships. I think that things were very personal. So you can imagine the emotional connection that everybody would have had to Onesimus. 
Uh, everybody that was there, if, if they knew Onesimus before he ran away, had a connection there. They knew the backstory to all of this before it was even read to them. As Paul says that this is also to the church. So I imagine Philemon would have read it first, but when Paul says it's to uh, Archippus as well as Alphys, and then it's also to the church that it was to be read to them. So you can, you can kind of get a sense for the emotional things that people might have been feeling as they were hearing this letter read and seeing this image of uh, the reconciliation, the pleading of Paul for forgiveness uh, on behalf of Philemon towards Onesimus. Verse three of what we read, it's a common greeting of Paul's. It's found in all 13 of his epistles. So even though he's not appealing from his apostleship, he is still desiring this. In verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, a, A quote that I liked about this, I just took it directly from a commentator in explaining this verse. When we think of grace, which is God's unmerited favor, he describes it this way. Grace is the means of salvation. Peace is its result. The linking of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as joint sources of grace and peace would be blasphemous if Jesus were a mere man or angel. That phrase is to be understood as an affirmation of the deity of Christ, his equality with God. So I I told you earlier there's probably not any deep, rich theological things that we'll be discussing, but even in this greeting you can think that there is something really rich and theological here and that is an affirmation of the Lord Jesus Christ being one with the Father, being God himself. We we see that resonating just in that small statement. But let's move on now to verse four and five. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So one thing we know about Paul is that he speaks truth. Holy Spirit writing through Paul is the truth giver here. And he will always directly point out when someone needs correction, whether it's a you know, doctrinal or, or theological error or whether it's sin that needs to be called out. Paul is not about flattering anybody. He'll get directly to the point if he needs to, but he doesn't do that with Philemon. And why doesn't he do that? I think it's so that we know that Uh, One, his expression is sincere here. If he's willing to call out sin for what it is and cut right to the chase like he does in the book of of Galatians, if he was seeing that in Philemon, he would be genuine about it and he would call it out. But that's not what Paul's doing here. Um, He goes immediately to expression, expressing his feelings towards Philemon and doesn't try to patronize him or anything here. We know that's not Paul. But I think about you know, as Paul writes this, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers about the people that pop up in my mind when I'm praying. And maybe you've had this happen to you as well. You go to God in prayer, and for me, being like a control freak by nature, I've got this plan that I'm gonna go to God in prayer, and here's the things I'm gonna pray for, and then why is this person popping into my head? I need to just kind of put that aside and focus on what I was going to pray for. But... You know, I'm guilty of doing that when God is bringing that person to my mind for a reason. That there is someone there that I need to pray for and I need to lift up the, their, uh, their relationship in prayer or whatever it is God that is put, why the reason that God is putting them in my mind. And I see, you know, Paul's talking about bringing that prayer to God for Philemon when he remembers him in his prayers. God like bringing someone into his thoughts as he's praying and therefore 
praying for them and I think that's a good reminder that I should not just think that the name of someone that enters into my mind for no reason uh, should not be paid attention to because I didn't plan on praying for them but to lift them up there regardless because God has brought them to mind in my prayers and I need to take time to thank God for them and to pray for them. Paul would know firsthand Philemon's character uh, but we see in verse five, that he was also hearing good things about him. And there were probably reports from Epaphras about Philemon, what kind of person he was. And maybe Paul asked Epaphras, he said, we send Onesimus back. Um, I, I know about his character, but what have you seen from him? I believe that Epaphras was indeed his pastor, as we find in the book of Colossians, but not exactly known, but we can understand that Paul is hearing some things about him. Already we can see the character of Philemon and his possessing this ability to forgive others because Paul says that he has a love for all the saints. But first and foremost, he has faith and love in his Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. This is a letter that we would want written about us. And when Paul says, I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. That someone could uh, be so confident in our relationship with Jesus Christ that they can say these things about us and especially that you have a love for the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. If one is holding on to bitterness or being unloving, it will be difficult, if not impossible, to forgive past mistakes. You think about someone maybe that you've held bitterness in your heart towards, and that bitterness just sometimes saturates us. It feels really weighty upon us, and there just doesn't seem like a way that we can have any forgiveness in our heart towards that person. And that's exactly what the enemy wants us. Is he wants us to hold on to that bitterness. He wants to hold on to that blackness or that anger that has held us in the bondage to that sin of unforgiveness. But no, we need to be loving. We need to be tenderhearted. We need to get rid of all bitterness, as Scripture calls us to do, in order to forgive, to forgive past mistakes. The ingredient forgiveness here is what Paul says is love. And that is what he's appealing to Philemon from, appealing from the love that he has seen and that he has heard about, that that he has for all the saints, all those in his home church, all those in the churches surrounding them, brothers and sisters in Christ, we should hold love in our hearts towards them. We are unified in love by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the thing that we all have in common. And it is not just any love, it's that agape love that we've referred to before throughout the book of Colossians. Whenever the word love was brought up, we look back at the Greek word and it was that agape love. That is a love that loves in spite of. It's the love of choice, that it overcomes opposition, the things that someone might do towards us that we don't feel that we could ever love them over that. This kind of love loves them over that circumstance, over that offense it's a self-sacrificing kind of love it's a love that comes from humility and we love this way as believers because he first loved us we go to the book of first john i want to ask you to turn there with me as i mentioned earlier in this message this may be the book that we go to after our study of philemon 
I don't know how many times the word love is mentioned here, and probably every time it is brought in, it's the agape kind of love. But 1 John chapter 4 is where I want us to go and look at verses 16 through 21 as we think of this love that Paul saw in Philemon, that Philemon had for the saints. Verse 16 of 1 John 4, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Philemon's love and faith towards the Lord Jesus and out of that love flowed the love that he had for all the saints of which Onesimus was now part of. We could call Onesimus a saint. He was a fellow believer in Christ. That is who this is speaking of when we see saints, all those who are in Christ. And if God's spirit truly indwells us, we will be loving in this way, this agape love. Even Philemon having owned Onesimus and Onesimus being his slave and Onesimus taking off and just like walking off the job, if you will, it'd be like this today. And then also taking money with him or taking some materials with him and being able to love over that offense if forgiveness is sought from the other party, and that is what is going on here. But if we want to love this way, and we just don't find that within us that we're able to, then I think we need to go back and probably do a root cause analysis. I've heard that term at work before. When something goes awry in in the process of a project, and you don't know why it went wrong, well then you have to do a step back process by process and see where it went wrong. And I think if we were to do that with our ability to forgive when we find we're not able to, then the first thing that we see here is Paul speaks first of the faith and the love that he has for Christ and then the love that he should have for all the saints. And that's true for every one of us. Is our faith in Jesus Christ and do we love him? And then, if that isn't right, we can see how our forgiveness might be flawed and we need to go back and we need to check this root cause first and then assess what might be going on with that forgiveness side of us. Uh, One of the things though here that kind of stuck out to me as I was studying this is who is it that we show this love to? So we know it's first, it's to Christ. You know, we love because he first loved us. Then we even have the ability to love in this way, to have that agape love that can love past an offense. So, so it is that. But it's also to be directed to the saints, right? When we see love and acts of self, sacrificial service within the church, it's directed to those within the church. Paul is obviously referring to believers here when he says saints, And in the passage that we read from John verse 20, just a while ago, it says that if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, it specifies brother here, 
If he hates his brother, then he is a liar. So this is obviously a love, this love being referred to is the love for another believer. Now we should be getting this right within first before we can then demonstrate it to those around us. So the love towards Christ, the love towards the saints, and then how do we love those outside of the faith? But we need to come back inwardly and see where it begins, where it originates in John chapter 13, 34 through 35, says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here it is speaking the love that we should be possessing for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The loving one another, the one another's are believers so that when they see the love that we have with each other, he says by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The one another, it's those who are the household of faith. And I myself included, we often flip the order of this. You know, sometimes if you think about it, like we try to show love to those outside of the household of faith first and sometimes only. And those within the body of Christ we, we want to hold unforgiveness towards them and we don't want to love them as we might want to love somebody outside of the church, outside of the saints. But we need to love the saints. We need to love the saints because Jesus says that's how they will know that we are believers if we love one another. So are we directing our love inwardly to those that are our brothers and sisters in Christ? How are we taking care of those inside the bodies of Christ? body of Christ. When we find in the Bible that we're supposed to show you know, care and we're supposed to minister to orphans and widows, widows of that time are to be taken care of in the Bible, but we see it's those widows that are within the church. Christians are often targeted by those outside the faith of almost in a demanding way. We demand you to show this kind of love towards us, but you often find that what they really want is something other than love. They want something that's a provision from your hand. You know, if, if you pay my rent, you're loving me. If you don't pay my rent, then you're not showing that love. And they use that to, they target the church with that accusation. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't engage in, you know, the mercy ministries to those outside of the church. That is a demonstration of love. But let's get right the love first that we have for one another in order to be able to show that love correctly the love that we should be showing and demonstrating to the world around us, it needs to start with, from within. So we shouldn't abandon all forms of serving outside the church. That's not what I'm getting at here. But what are we really trying to give them? We want our service to be a demonstration of Christ's love for us. But let it begin with our love towards each other within the faith. Let it begin with how we minister and take care of each other. This is how all people are to know that we belong to Christ. How are we loving one another? Verse six, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So Paul's prayer is continuing here. He begins this verse by saying, and I pray, so the continuing of the prayer, and it is about this faith that he already sees in Philemon, that he's already stated has, he has seen in Philemon's character as being directed towards Christ but that this faith is also being seen in how it is shared. 
And this is an appeal to Philemon's character. It's almost like saying, you have it within you to forgive. <laughs> I have seen it in you. you. You possess this. Because you love the Lord Jesus, that you have put your faith in him. You have love for all the saints. He said that. And as a believer, there is now a sharing of faith with other believers that is also an appeal to forgive Onesimus without demanding it of him. And you kind of see Paul's approach to this here. I mean, it's the Spirit's approach through Paul. Although I love my ESV translation, I like to look at how other translations, at other translations to see what word choices are used when they differ from that of mine. So when the ESV says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, that phrase there and that word sharing is translated differently in the NASB and also in the King James Version, if you were to look at the Greek word, the Greek word is koinonia, and it's kind of a difficult word to translate, and that's why it probably has three different words depending on what translation you're using. But if you were looking at NASB, which I know some of you have, the word there is the fellowship of your faith, is how that phrase is translated, the fellowship, not the sharing, but the fellowship in place of sharing. And then King James Version uses communication, the communication of your faith. It's difficult, like I said, to translate it precisely, uh, but it doesn't mean that we're to have more potlucks. Uh, you know, we might want to justify that by using this verse, but as Christians, there is a bond that we have, and it's a unified experience of having been saved out of our sin and brought into that newness of life that we have in Christ and where once we might not have had anything in common with each other like hobbies or experiences, there is something we share now and that is the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is seeing in Philemon and that's what he's asking that he shares in, that he communicates in, that he fellowships in, depending on what word you want to use there. I think all of them are fitting that's the bond that we share. We belong to each other in a sense, a mutual partnership that is produced by faith in Christ. And we sometimes need reminders about this bond of fellowship that we share in not centered around a meal or a conversation because when we think of fellowship, we always want to liken it to those things. But that is the common experience and the common savior that we all have by faith in him. Or I hope that we all share or will be there um, to share in this faith. The shared faith that Paul's reminding Philemon of that we are reminded of as well here is not just to sit idle and do nothing though. We went over that several times in our study of Colossians that this is not a dead faith. The, the, the writer James in his epistle would say that there is a faith that is a dead faith and even the demons possess that. It's just to kind of give an assent to a belief but then it's not seen in the way that you treat others and your attitude towards others. Paul's prayer for Philemon is that his fellowship of faith, uh, using maybe the NASB word there, he says it may, that it may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That key word, that may become effective so that's not a dead faith. This is a faith that Paul is looking to in Philemon that he can share with others, that there will be an effect in his life. So don't just say that you have this faith and then live your life in bitterness and hate. You can read a book and know how to do something, but then never actually do that thing that the book instructed you to do, 
And that's kind of what this, this faith would be if it wasn't effective. And I'm thinking about how the King James communicates it. How do you communicate that faith? Saying you have faith and not having any outward demonstration of that faith does not demonstrate a new life in Christ. But let it become effective. And the result of that effectiveness, as Paul writes, is all the good things that are within us. And I believe that is what Paul is referring to in the blessings that he describes in Ephesians 1.3 where it says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that this is not to be understood of what, we can be, what can be gained in a worldly sense, but it's what is already ours through relationship with Christ Jesus. What do we possess in him? Well, we possess the love that we've talked about. We possess a joy that can be had. We, we possess within us a peace we have a peace relationship with God and therefore we have a, a peace with ourselves and a peace that we can share with others. And for Philemon, what better way to show his faith effective than to forgive? And maybe that is for you as well. So I don't know what you're holding on to in your heart, but God does if you are holding on to something. Our acts towards other Christians are not done for the sake of the act themselves or for us to get attention or for acknowledgement. What does Paul say here? He says it is for the sake of Christ. So if we are living out our Christian life with effectiveness, then it should begin by bringing glory to Christ. What are actions done for? Are we out there serving in the community? Are we serving in our church so that we would get an acknowledgement from man and say, oh, look what, look what Ray did. Look what Stephen did. It's not for that sake. It's for the sake of Christ. There's another root cause analysis to maybe check to see if we really are doing the things that we do for the sake of God's glory or for the sake of our own. And part of the appeal of Paul would be to remind Philemon that he should be concerned about glorifying Christ. Not doing it because Paul is asking it, but because the believer's heart should be motivated by glorifying God in all that we say or do. And sometimes the hardest thing is to forgive. Forgive others and maybe even forgive ourselves but we do it for the sake of his name and because he is the one that is working in us. So if you don't think you have the ability to forgive, you don't on your own, (laughs) only Christ in you. Verse seven, this is our last verse for this morning. I need a drink for the home stretch. (laughs) For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul himself, he's experienced joy, comfort, and love directly from Philemon. He's observed these things in him and he's experienced them. And it wasn't something that was being commanded from him, but it was already seen in him. And it is the same love that is already there that Paul is affirming and appealing to. The love that Paul has seen in him, he asks that he refresh others. And again, he directs us to who? The saints. Refresh the saints of whom Onesimus is now part of. And you can see him laying out his appeal and we're gonna continue in this next week and there's going to be more aspects to this forgiveness that we're seeing here. But this is where we're going to close this morning. You know, in order to forgive, we must recognize that we are not better than others. And just because we may have a better job, maybe we have a, a better home or a vehicle or more money, or maybe we hold some high office that that does not make us better than another person who is in Christ. And the appeal for forgiveness begins there. 
from humility, recognizing we are all bondservants to Christ. The playing field is all level there. The appeal for forgiveness should be because someone has placed their faith in Christ and has first professed their love for him so they in turn can love others in a selfless way. How are we in doing inside the body of Christ? Are we finding it easier to forgive outsiders than we are those within the household of faith? Remember, they will know we are Christians by the way that we love one another. And how are we sharing or communicating our faith? A true faith in Christ is not just about doing nothing, but it is effective. It's helping the good things come to the surface of our lives and doing it for the glory and the sake of his name.